We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Scott Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Hello and welcome to Behind the Headlines. I'm Neil Bradley and my co-host as usual, Joe Quinn. Hi there. Today is Sunday, January 10th, 2016. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. We are interviewing this week, for the second time, freelance journalist and human rights activist Ava Bartlett, who was on the show two months ago. Ava was aboard the Dignity, one of the five free Gaza relief operations who successfully sailed to the Gaza Strip in 2008. She ended up staying in Gaza for some time, reporting there from during the Israeli operations cast lead, and a couple of years later, I believe, during Pillar of Defense. What a terrible name for that ghastly operation. In the last couple of years, Ava has visited Syria, Syria several times, including independently on a journalist visa. She recently returned from Syria, where she spent eight days in the war-torn country over Christmas, I believe, and is joining us today for a sit-rep on the situation in Syria. You can find Ava's writings on Syria and Gaza at her blog, ingaza.wordpress.com. Ava, welcome. Happy New Year to you. And thanks for talking to us. Thank you, and Happy New Year to you both, and I just wish that this year brings more um, truth to the situations that we're all covering, and I hope that it brings peace. Absolutely. Um, do you think, so you were, you were just in, uh, last, last month, you, eight days you spent in, in Syria? Yes, um, I was in Lebanon for a conference on Palestine, um, right of return conference, and as it happened, um, uh, I got a visa, a journalist visa, to return to Syria, so I took advantage of the fact that I was already over in that, that area. Okay, and um, this is right, obviously, I mean, being in Syria at in December, December 2015, last month, um, that's a pretty, uh, probably a pretty intense, probably one of the most intense times uh in, in certainly in recent years, I suppose to be there, but given all, everything that's happened uh, uh, in Syria, not over, not just over the past four years, but specifically since last September, since the Russians got involved. So, I mean, what, um, what, what was your, what was your take on the situation vis-a-vis, you know, what I suppose what people in the West here. Get, which is that ISIS is running, uh, overrunning the whole country. The Russians are trying to bomb them, um, and the Assad government is, you know, stable, not stable. It's a dictatorship. Syrians want Assad to leave. That's what's the cause of all this, according to John Kerry. Is Assad being there? He, he's even to blame for ISIS. Assad. Um, what's what's the situation? I mean, that's what we're told in the West. That's what Western audiences via the mainstream media get. So could you, maybe you want to truthify some of that? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, um, there's a lot to, uh, in terms of the propaganda and the um, rhetoric against Syria, uh, there are some things that are just so um, tired and old that it's it's just so laughable to uh, think that people are still repeating it, like like this whole Assad must step down, the Syrian people are being, um, you know, oppressed by 
Assad, it's a dictatorship, or it's, you know, it's a, the regime is, is killing its people. I mean, mm-hmm. all of this has been um, repeatedly refuted. And, I mean, it's, it's really, I have to say, it's Western arrogance. I mean, okay, you can't really blame the average person that's being spoon-fed this, these horrible narratives, but it really is Western um, arrogance for, for any leader or any individual here to be saying that the Syrian people don't know what they want. They know what they want. They went out and they voted in mass and they chose their president. Um, whether they chose President Assad because they truly love him or because they see him as the unifying force, the only force in Syria that's going to fight this terrorism, doesn't really matter. The fact is they chose President Assad. Okay, so that let's just leave that aside. Um, and just every time I've gone to Syria since April 2014 and the times I've spent in Lebanon in between, Syrians tell me we, we want President Assad, and many of them are actually quite adamant about the fact that they love their president. So that that narrative, you know, has been dealt with. Although the Western media and John Kerry continue to try to bring this up as if it's somehow um, even a talking point anymore. Um, in terms of things that have changed, so I, I wish I wish I could say I had gone to Syria prior to this uh, foreign war was orchestrated on Syria, but I didn't. I only got there for the first time in April 2014 after I'd been doing quite a bit of reading and advocacy from afar. Um, so, you know, since April 2014, there have been some very important changes. Um, back in April, the, for example, Homs was totally um, still inhabited or um, infested by terrorists. And, I mean, specifically the old city of Homs and different areas of Homs. Now, um, at present, the only area of Homs that still has a small band of terrorists is Al-Wa'ar. Um, and I'll talk about that in a bit. But back then, I mean... Um, Homs was infested with terrorists who were, um, you know, there's a lot of media right now on people starving in Syria. Well, when the when the terrorists were um, occupying old Homs, people were starving. And in June 2014, when I went back there on a journalist visa, I had a chance to meet with some of the survivors of that um, terrorist occupation of old Homs that stayed, um, specifically um, Zainet and uh, Zainet, Zainet, sorry, Zainet and Ayman al-Akhas who lived in the old city, who stayed to the very end, and who were starving by these terrorists. Um, so that's just one point, that now, whereas these terrorists did inhabit the old city and did destroy not only homes, but you know any sort of Christian um, sites, churches, etc., hospitals, they're gone now. Homs is starting to rebuild. It has a lot of rebuilding to do still, but when I was there just now, the difference between um, June 2014, when it was literally piles of rubble everywhere you look, in the old city. Um, now people have cleaned up. It's, um, some people have opened shops. It was very interesting to see that in the old city where, again, a lot of rebuilding needs to happen, people have taken their own initiative. There have been government initiatives as well and opened shops, opened um, new schools. So there's that. Um, I mentioned Al-Wa'ar. So with this, there was a deal um, to uh, basically um, extract uh, a number of the terrorists from Al-Wa'ar and uh, take them, I think it was uh, via Lebanon or Turkey, um, to extract them and take them out of that area. Um, I was at Alwar, and I was able to go to the front lines um, at the last um, Syrian Arab Army checkpoint. And so I asked what the situation was, and um, a journalist who's from Homs, who's been covering Alwar, and the, 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 the Syrian military at the checkpoint told me, you know, there's still roughly over 2,000 of these terrorists inside. They chose not to participate in this reconciliation. They remain there. 
Um, but there is a ceasefire, but that ceasefire could at any moment be broken because essentially they're taking orders from their puppeteers, you know, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey. Um, so as we stood there uh, at the, you know, at the front lines um, where civilians are crossing in and out into Al-Wair, but they have to go through um, the terrorist checkpoint and then they come to the Syrian Arab Army checkpoint. Um, and these people are coming out of Al-Wair. Maybe they, they work or study in Homs or people are coming from Homs to work in Al-Wair, where they had worked before, um, and they're being enabled um, transit by the Syrian Arab Army. They're not being blocked. And at the same time, I saw you know, medicines going in to Al-Wair. I, um, I visited a bread factory that is providing the bread for that area. And this is all the bread, the, the wheat, is being um, uh, provided by the Syrian government. But yeah, as we stood there at the check at the uh, checkpoint, they said, you know, I said, so it's, you know, there's a ceasefire. It's safe. They said, well, no, it could be broken at any time. You should step back now because they're watching us over here, and, and they could snipe at any time. So there's hmm. that. Um, but I mean, it's important to note that the Alwire um, process is part of the greater reconciliation um, project that's been going on for years that no one deigns to speak about because this is a Syrian government initiative that has actually been quite successful. Right. This is an ongoing process uh, of negotiation between various groups in which um, there are general amnesties for weapons in exchange for safe passage? Yes, that's correct. Um, okay. There's actually a Ministry of Reconciliation um, that, again, corporate media won't speak about, or if they do, they mock the concept. But it's an important concept and it's an important reality because um, it shows that the Syrian government, in addition to the army fighting the terrorism that's been foisted upon Syria, the Syrian government is making very real attempts at negotiating with Syrians, not with these foreign you know, uh, terrorists that have come from every corner of the earth, but with Syrians who, for whatever reason, took up arms but are wanting to reconcile. So they lay down their arms, mm -hmm. they go through an amnesty program, they're given amnesty. So, so there. I mean, you're mentioning there. I mean, people have heard a lot about Syria over the past few years. They've heard of the Free Syrian Army, Al Qaeda, Al Nusra Front, and ISIS most, most uh, particularly. Um, the in, in from what you understand, there does seem to be, or there was at least in the past, anyway, in the past at some point in the past four years, uh, a kind of genuine anti-government indigenous Syrian kind of uh, armed movement? Um, my understanding, and this is through reading various, uh, a lot of documentation, including witness testimony in various areas of Syria, is that, um, yes, there was a will for political change, and there still is a will for political change. Mm -hmm. And yes, there were some Syrians that took up arms, um, but that this whole notion of a revolution, which it is not, Mm -hmm. uh, we can get into that why it's not, but it's not a revolution and it's not a civil war. But this whole notion of it um, was pre-planned. And you have various top U.S. administration leaders um, and documents noting this was pre-planned. But anyway, mm -hmm. there were protests. And from the beginning, protesters were armed, not only in Dara, but also in Homs. The late Father Franz van der Lute, a Dutch priest that lived there for decades, was assassinated by one of these so-called moderate rebels. Um, and he was somebody that stayed in Homs until his assassination and right prior to Homs's, uh liberation. And he was saying from the beginning he saw armed protesters among these so-called nonviolent demonstrations. So that narrative has been repeatedly um, documented that th this was never a nonviolent so-called revolution. Mm -hmm. um, 
there has been, I mean, when I was there in April 2014 with an international peace delegation, we met with um, internal opposition members, and some of them were quite vocal in their criticism of what, what problems they viewed with the Syrian government. But all of them said, whereas they want political change, and they're still fighting for political change, whether they re were representatives of a Kurdish party, um, Women's Party, the SSNP, various political parties, all the ones that, that we met with um, said, we're still going to fight for political change, but right now we're behind our government because we see that this is a foreign plot on Syria. This is not the way to achieve political change. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, th the one thing you never hear in the in the media, and it seems like in, in the Western media, is that um, any kind of an armed uh, revolution or uprising against the the government of a country usually happens after a kind of protracted period of the people of that country pro pro protesting peacefully. You know, they get out in the streets and they want some political change and they start having demonstrations. And it's usually only after a period where those demonstrations are, are, are put down or they're violently put down um, that people will then resort to get, you know, armed uprisings. But it seems that in terms of Syria, the, as you just mentioned, the, the armed aspect of this, so-called uprising happened right at the very beginning in 2011. It did, it did. And, and, and this is documented not just from people like myself who have gone to Syria and talked with Syrian um, civilians in Homs, in Damascus, um, from Dara, who have said, you know, they, they heard the sectarian chants um, kill the Alawis, Christians to Beirut. Not only that, but it's been documented by various investigative journalists who have found that, again, like uh, in Dara, the, the initial um, firing came from the protesters and that, right. in fact, the, the security forces were not firing in the crowds and the army wasn't even present until after protesters started to slaughter um, Syrian security forces. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of un, um, massacres that went unspoken in the corporate media, but uh, investigative journalists like Sharmin Narwani did look into them and looked at how in the very initial months there were massive slaughters of Syrian soldiers. And she also, interestingly, in one of her articles, I think it was The Hidden Massacre, she was looking at, um, it was one of her early articles, and she was looking at the, the lists that were purporting to be, you know, the death lists of, of so-called unarmed protesters in Syria. And she noted that on one of these lists, um, they included protesters that were actually Palestinians that had been killed by the Zionist forces when the Palestinians were protesting on land day. And they were included on these, these death tolls of so-called unarmed protesters killed by the Syrian government. There, wow. I mean, there are so many fallacies there. Mm -hmm. um, but as, as as I've seen and as colleagues have seen, you know, at different, like, for example, um, at different uh, conferences in March, I went to the World Social Forum in Tunis. Tunis, I'm sorry. Um, I went specifically to hear what kind of um, talks were being given on Syria. And sure enough, there were the, a couple of talks that I attended were largely led by um, Western leftists. They had token Arab um uh, talking heads, but largely Western leftists, or if they were Syrians in exile, the point was their narrative was for the six, first six or seven months, um, the protests were unarmed, the Syrian so-called regime was just massacring people, and this has been um, point out um, blatantly, um, is it, these are blatant lies that have been disputed, and the, the truth of the fact um, of these sectarian and armed uh, protests has been documented, and you have the case of um, Nidal, um, there's a man named Nidal from uh, from the Tartus area, who was just he was um, he was apprehended by by terrorists 
who at that time may have been going on, well, it was initial protests. They weren't yet called the Free Syrian Army. They were just terrorists that were armed, locals that were armed, and they paraded this poor man around, slashed him in the face, and basically massacred him in front of a group of people because he was Alawi. Mm-hmm. And they confessed to this later. So these are these are the West unarmed protesters. Then this, the, the U.S. regime continues to keep talking about moderates, but there are no moderates, and this is this is a fact. I mean, it's not just this is a major criticism of of not just corporate media, but some independent media is that they they only now talk about Daesh or ISIS, but in fact, all these terrorists, whether they're Nusra, Ahar al-Sham, so-called FSA, they've all been con- um, committing heinous acts against the Syrian people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, the idea then is that there was some brewing or latent sectarian tension in Syria for a long, long time that was just waiting to explode is a, is a, is a lie as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, uh, based on what I've read and been told, the only sectarianists that were in Syria would be the Muslim Brotherhood, who had a, a, a traditional um, kind of base in Hama and other regions as well. And they had, um, in the past, like in the 80s, they tried to, um, they committed massacres, actually, against the Syrian mm-hmm. government. But, I mean, every other Syrian I've met in Syria, in, in Latakia, in Homs, in Damascus, in Sueda, have said they're Syrian first, and then right. if you really probe them, then they'll say whatever their faith is. Right, because most people in any country want want a... a a safe and a peaceful and a, and a normal life. I mean, the idea that the Syrian people or any significant percentage of the Syrian people would have wanted uh, what happened over the past four years to happen is just ridiculous, and it's true for every single country, you know. Um, sectarian divisions are, are you know, are not, and I don't think in any country, they're, they're not um, strong enough for the ordinary people who would hold to different kind of religious beliefs or whatever to say that, yes, this is worth, or my religious belief is, is worth destroying my country and, and the deaths of millions or hundreds of thousands of Syrians, uh, that, that it's worth that. You know, that's, that's absolutely ridiculous and anti-human. So the question then comes, uh, you know, where, does this, where are these kind of fracture points uh, or how are they, how are they um, exacerbated and provoked and, and by whom? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the okay, first, like, uh, I have, I know many Syrians, uh, friends of mine, um, who are intermarried. So, for example, one's Shia, one's Sunni, or Sunni mm-hmm. Christian, or whatever. There's intermarriages all over the place. I mean, you have the villages, uh, which I wanted to mention anyhow, um, the villages of Fuan and Kafaria, just north of Idlib, that have been besieged by terrorists for years, for four years. And like uh, and and very definitely um, locked down since uh, I think it was March last year, and these terrorists are not only denying entry of food and medicine, but they're also um, terrorizing them with mortars and missiles, and they've, they've killed over a thousand uh, people in those villages. And the, the Western media and the so-called human rights groups aren't talking about this, um, and we'll probably get back to this later when we talk about Madaya. But in those villages. When the corporate media does address them, they do so very passingly, and they mention two Shia villages. They are predominantly Shia, but when I talked with friends from those villages, they were they, they pointed out, Eva, we have intermarried and we've shared the faith and we've shared the celebrations of our neighbors, our Sunni or Christian neighbors or whatever their faith is. And it isn't an issue of us being Shia. We've always shared one another's customs. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Christmas in... in um, and Syria was a perfect example. Again, in Homs and in Damascus, and I was also in Sueda, 
but in Homs and Damascus, where I saw the most um, decorations, although later when I was writing about this, you know, and looking, you saw Christmas being celebrated all throughout Syria, um, wherever possible, wherever they're not, you know, being locked down by terrorists. Um, you saw people going, you saw Muslims in Damascus going to church services or putting up Christmas trees. Um, Dr. Mutena Shaban, who herself is um, a Muslim, said she has a Christmas tree. She's the advisor to the Syrian president. She has a Christmas tree in her home. She's always had one, and her daughters have are now in their 30s, and they have Christmas trees. I mean, they Syrians deny the sectarianism. It's mm-hmm. it's it's foisted upon them by these disgusting Wahhabi forces in mm-hmm. you know in Saudi Arabia or the Muslim Brotherhood in Qatar and Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the you have the the Mufti of Saudi Arabia calling for all churches in the Arabian Peninsula to be razed, to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, yet you have the Mufti in Syria saying he is the Mufti of all Syrians. He's not yeah. the, the Mufti of Muslims. And he espouses love to all faiths. I mean, um, it's the, yeah. the contrast could not be more di- more shocking. Yeah, it's completely normal as I, well. You know? I read that this guy, the Grand Mufti of Syria, gave a Christmas mass in a church. Right. It, yes, exactly. That's the head I, of I, Islam for all Syria. Precisely. And uh, on my second meeting with him in February of 2015, um, who was seated next to him but um, Archbishop, um, uh, the Archbishop of, uh, gosh, I'm blanking, Al-Khuri, no, hold on, I'll get his name, Patriot Laham, that's who was sitting next to him. And, and Mufti Hassoun was saying, he's my cousin, you know, mm. generations back, we were all cousins. And this is the same thing I heard when I was in Homs with a friend from the Ahras family. He himself is Muslim. The family that I mentioned earlier are Christian. They come from one family, and at some point, one of their relatives uh, became Muslim, and the other became or uh, remained Christian. But it doesn't matter. I mean, they're still they're, the Syrians consider themselves Syrian first. Mm. So your your prognosis, even after four years of this, is that let's call it sectarianization from outside has not yet taken hold to any significant degree within Syria? No, I mean, uh, as we know, the, the terrorists that are infest, um, have infested Syria are primarily from outside. Yes, there are Syrians that, for whatever reason, have taken up arms. Um, and their reasons are diverse. Some of them, it is because they think it's a revolution, but the majority, I would say, have done so because they're getting paid or because for, mm-hmm. for other reasons... They, yeah, or in many cases where the terrorists um, have a stronghold, they don't really have a choice. They do it, or they're they're killed, or finished. Yeah, yeah. But um, but for the vast majority of Syrians, they, the sectarianism hasn't. I mean, it has become more more common now to discuss one's religion, but not because it's sectarian. Hmm. Um, when I went to Sweda, so Sweda is uh, to the south and slightly east of Damascus, and it's known to be a Druze area. And, of course, you know, I went there and I was welcomed. Uh, and I, I met with different people from Sweda and also with one of the highest Druze um, officials who's, who's commonly known as Sheikh Al-Aqal, the, the mind um, Sheikh. And he and the people I met with said, from the beginning, the people of Sweda recognized that this was a foreign plot in Syria. And there were attempts along the way, assassinations of people, uh, attempts to create division and to turn the people of Sweda against the government, but they were able to remain united and resist this and resist the outside sectarianism. 
Mm-hmm. And so Sueda is is actually relatively calm. You wouldn't know there was a war going on in Syria if you were in Sueda because people have actually come back to Sueda to invest in their community to help because, you know, with a combination of the war and the criminal sanctions in Syria has devastated Syria's economy. So people from outside that have been living elsewhere came back to Sueda and are investing in their own economy. Yeah. It's... Um it's just it's it's kind of crazy making when you think about it because if if people in the West would just stop for a minute and think uh, about the the kind of propaganda that's that's going on in the West and in particular uh, in Europe and in in the US like an anti-Muslim propaganda um, and realize that that is just simply uh, a, a kind of a facade or a veneer that's being forced on on Muslims of which there are you know one and a half billion around the world uh, to make them all appear to be you know the kind of bloodthirsty savages that that ISIS are. Uh, when it, it's kind of it's ridiculous like, that, that people would have such extreme religious beliefs that they would kill other people of a different kind of a different religious persuasion, which nobody's really sure about anyway. You know, in terms of religion, yeah, my God, your God, heaven, hell, whatever. I don't know, not too sure. Yeah, it's a bo- it's a story in a book, you know. But you know, and there's different types. So, but I'm going to kill you for that, you know. And why wouldn't a, a woman like that you just described in Syria, uh, who has who's exposed, who lives in a kind of multi-religious country, effectively, a Muslim woman who who knows about Christians, why wouldn't she have a tree, a nice pretty tree in her room at at a certain time of the year if it's custom? Hey, it brightens up my living room, you know. And equally, why would I, as, as a nominally uh, or as a Christian, uh, not that I'm practicing, but um, why would I not? Want to hang out with some Muslim friends uh, during, uh, you know, um, Eid or Ramadan, or Ramadan, and and eat some nice uh, pastries in the evening and have some nice sweet tea. Oh yeah, it's horrible. It really offends my religious beliefs that you would ask me to eat some nice pastries and have some tea. What is? I mean, the idea is just so ridiculous, and that anybody uh, subscribes to it is is beyond. I mean, well, that anybody subscribe to subscribes to it is. I suppose a testimony to the extent of the propaganda that the Western press and governments are are marshalling and shoving down people's throats. But it, still, just stop and think about it, and you realise that these are just a bunch of hired mercenary psycho, most of them psychopaths or otherwise mentally disturbed individuals who are hired guns, who are doing it for money, to, and because they like killing people, because they're psychopaths, they like they like to go and kill people, and you can collect enough of those, pay them enough money, give them enough weapons to go into a country to achieve your geopolitical geopolitical ends, and um, but behind it all is the reality of the situation, which is the vast majority of normal people of any religious persuasion on this planet are totally against everything that those people do. So how do they occupy such a big place in our lives today? How, why is it that I'm seeing the horrors of ISIS in Europe and in America and threats and plots and all this nonsense from this tiny, tiny group of nut jobs? I mean, I, I think something important to, to recognize is that uh, you know, the corporate media and Hollywood and various institutions, human rights groups, so-called human rights groups, um, but especially the, the mainstream media have been relentlessly vilifying Muslims. I mean, um, I, I personally don't feel that any Muslim should have to distinguish themselves, should have to stand up and say, what, what ISIS is does not represent me, because obviously yeah. it doesn't. I mean, ISIS is, they're mercenaries. They're mercenaries that have fought and massacred in Libya, in Afghanistan. They just Iraq. they have different names, but they're mercenaries. That's all they are. 
Um, it's not about religion, although this is how the, the propaganda works, is they, they portray themselves as Muslims, and they, they say that they're killing people because they're not Muslim enough. I mean, when you look at Syria, it's not surprising that Muslims will attend Christian mass or Christians will go to mosque. And, I mean, I was talking with um, a National Defense uh, Forces soldier. I stayed in the old city um, when I was there, and I've stayed there a few times, actually. So it's been interesting, and we can get into that. But um, this was a man who's from the Christian area. He might even have been Armenian. I didn't ask. But anyway, he was Christian. Um, and he, he, years ago, um, became a National Defense Forces soldier to defend his quarter, his children, his country. Um, and as we're talking, he, you know, he without even intending, he, he just says, yeah, you know, I go, sometimes my Muslim friend comes with me to church, sometimes I go to mosque, and it's not like he's, he just drops it, you know, because it's natural for them. For them, it's, it's like I said, they, they've intermarried, they've shared one another's celebrations. There hasn't been this, this division between, uh, I'm Christian, you're Muslim. This division is coming from outside. You look at a place like Saudi Arabia or Qatar or places that have been influenced by them, and sadly, you have this stereotype of what is a Muslim. The stereotype doesn't apply to Muslims I know. I have many dear and close Muslim friends, and they, they also send me Christmas wishes, whether they're in Syria or in Canada. The stereotype is coming from, you know, again, from corporate media, from mm -hmm. Hollywood, from false flag terrorism. That's where it's coming from. Um, but, yeah, I mean, for example, one group that I met uh, in Damascus was a group of, uh, a volunteer group. And when I met them, it was accidental. I was... I had just done an interview with um, with the patriarch of Homs, who was in Damascus, and I was walking around the old city. I decided that at this time, since I didn't have any meetings, I was just going to visit some of the churches in the old city and see what they were doing. So I was heading towards what's known as the Zaytuna Church, because it's on Zaytun Street, um, and they, there were some people erecting uh, a, like a homemade uh, tree made of you know metal and cloth, which later on just looks fabulous. But anyway, um, I saw them walking towards the church, and they had these vests um, with the, the name Saad Association. Saad means helping or help. So I just asked them, "Oh, what's going on? Can I, you know, can I interview you?" So they were very kind, and they they took me in and showed me the tree they're working on. Then they took me into a kitchen where they were baking Christmas treats, and they told me they had over a thousand volunteers, among them many children from um, from a special needs school, and they were baking these uh, special sweets, date stuffed cookies that they were going to hand out to less fortunate people throughout Christmas. Um, but anyway, as, as we're leaving, um, the director, really nice man, Isam, Isam um, Hebel, uh, just casually said to me, oh, by the way, most of us are Muslim. And here they are. And they don't only do campaigns for, for, for Christians, but the point is they, they do campaigns for all Syrians, mm -hmm. right? So this is just another example. And, you know, Doc Mufti Hassoun, um, I'm sure President Assad has spoken about the, the the, the social fabric of Syria. I know that Dr. Jafri, he's given, before he was, um, you know, the Syrian representative uh, to the United Nations in New York City, before he was put under a ridiculous 25-mile um, restriction, travel limit, he was, prior to that, traveling around the states and, and meeting with very, um, with Syrians in, in, in the states who were very um, interested to hear what he had to say. And I remember watching um, one beautiful um video of a meeting um, of him, I can't remember where it was in the States, but he's talking about the, the social fabric of, of Syria. And, you know, he makes the point, and, and again, most Syrians do make the point that they are all brothers and sisters, and, I mean, he says it far more eloquently, but the point that um, 
there's not been any of this this sectarian divide prior to this. Okay. And there still isn't. This is a this is a Syrian man living in the U.S. who's under a 25 mile travel limit. I um yeah I so I met with Dr. Al Jafri. He's an amazing spokesperson for Syria. He's extremely articulate. He's uh, he speaks I think it's four languages. Extremely educated. Um, I met with him um, a couple of times now. The first time I was able to interview him. And with regard to the United Nations, which is just a ridiculous institution, I mean, the United Nations has Saudi Arabia as the head of a human rights council. Mm. Um, and all that, you know, when you just look at Palestine, all the resolutions that have been passed against Israel with respect to Palestinians' rights and have never achieved anything because the United Nations, in the end, is not there to actually implement anything that will help oppress people. They're just there to implement criminal no-fly zones that will kill people or further occupation. But anyway... Um, when the Syrian ambassador, Dr. Al-Jafri, speaks at the UN, frequently um, the news feed is cut, the video feed is cut, or his mic is cut, or he's limited to the amount of time he can speak. It's just, um, it's absolutely scandalous what they do to him because he's the representative of Syria. So, you know, in theory, when you're talking about terrorism in Syria, you need the Syrian representative to speak. But they routinely um, cut his mic or don't allow him to speak, period. That's a very typical tactic, which we know well. I mean, that goes back to, reminds me of in the north of Ireland where they would um, not allow any Republican Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin dissidents from appearing on the news and once they were eventually allowed to speak, they had to dub their voices. It's an actor's voice. Actor's voice. Is, I mean, it's hysterical, really. I mean, yeah. It, but it reinforced the impression in the public's mind that these were True. not human or subhuman, yeah, exactly. separate from us. You see? Yeah. Yes. And, you know, and along that line, um, you know, on the issue of terrorism and, and, and separate from us and whose lives are important or not. So when the attacks happened in Paris, whether they happened as the corporate media um, reported or not, the point was people were killed, lives were lost. And that is tragic anywhere. When it happened, you know, Facebook, um, Yahoo, Google, all the big, um, you know, corporations were offering to change people's profile pictures or putting up logos mm -hmm. of the, the French uh, the French flag. Yes. Well, when when the bombings happened in in Beirut on November 12th in Bushbarajni, the district of Bushbarajni, not the Palestinian camp, and 44 people were killed. You didn't get that same sympathy. Instead, uh, the way it was painted was a Hezbollah stronghold, a militant stronghold. Uh, you know, was attacked. Okay, that's all. It doesn't matter. I went there and I, I saw, you know, some of the people um, who had lost loved ones in these bombings. And the area was not a Hezbollah militant stronghold. It was a neighborhood. <laughs> it was a neighborhood that had, yes, Shia, but it also had Sunnis and it had Christians. Um, and the people that were killed were, were civilians. And the, the bombings that occurred, occurred, um, I believe it was right before 6 p.m. It was a busy time. This was a street that had residential um, buildings, it had commercial shops, it had um, bakeries and small restaurants, and it was a very narrow street. So when these bombs went off, they inflicted a lot of damage. Um, and there was one brave man, um, I think his name was Adel Tormes, who prevented a third uh, suicide bomber from um, exploding himself, and he himself, Adele, was killed. But the point is that these lives didn't matter in the corporate media, mm -hmm. nor did you know the lives of the people in uh, Zahra district in Homs. So Zahra was, um, I mean, Homs 
various parts of Homs have been um, targeted with suicide and car bombings over the years. Zahra, more recently, um, was targeted on December 12th, and I've heard differing reports on the number of people that were killed, but the Syrian state media says 16 civilians were killed and 54 injured, including many in critical um, situations. Um, so when I was in, in Syria, I, I, got, I went to Zahra and I spoke with some of the, the, the survivors. People had lost um, siblings or children or, or parents, people who were themselves injured. And they, they told me, and what they told me how it happened was different than how the corporate media portrayed it, and of course also their humanity. <laughs> I mean, these were people that were suffering immensely but were stoically um, continuing on, and, and that support their army and support their government. Um, what they told me happened was uh, a car was parked, it was a stolen Red Crescent vehicle, was parked um, near a shop, right near a natural gas delivery truck, which thereby um, ensured two massive explosions, the initial car bomb and then the, the, the truck next to it. And then some hours later, the attacker came back and exploded his own vest, um, killing more people that had come to help after the initial blast. So the, the corporate media kind of glossed over their points. Um, again, they painted it as an Alawi stronghold. Well, various people I talked with, journalists, residents, have said, yes, it, it, it is isn't largely an Alawi neighborhood, but there are also Sunnis living there, and there are displaced people from other areas living there, and there are Sunni shopholders living there. So again, this is this corporate media attempt to paint it as an Alawi, therefore somehow it deserved it neighborhood. Hmm. The area was attacked on December 28th again, um, and according to, there's again varying reports. I'll go with Syrian state media, which was, um, I believe, uh, under, I think, 20 or so people were killed. It was already 20 too much. Um, and again, little to no um, notice in the corporate media, or if it was, it would be with the same loaded terms, an Alawi neighborhood. Mm. Just on that point, it's just a small point that's maybe... Um it, it pertains to the longer so-called war on terror. Uh, the, the idea of a suicide bomber, um, where, where do you get someone who's willing to kind of blow themselves up for some, you know, really, at the end of the day, some, uh, a fairly uh, subjective, let's say, subjective cause, you know? Uh, against people that you know that they don't even know, and you know, I mean, you can understand something. How much like, can you pay a guy to do it? Well, I can understand something <laughs> in terms of a crime, a crime of passion or something like that, where someone was deranged or mentally unstable and some, you know, really just out of their mind that would do something like that. But in terms of the the, the preponderance of so-called suicide bombers that there have been, you know, starting actually in Israel, uh, in Palestine and Israel, uh, I think back in the 80s was one of the first ones. Uh, and then it's continued on. It has been one of the major uh, sticks that have been used to kind of beat and, and demonize uh, Muslims, the, the, the very idea that there would be such a thing as a Muslim suicide bomber when you don't have such a thing yeah. in the West, you know. Um, but Eva, what's, I mean, is there any, did you ever get any uh, impression of, of, of what local people in, in Syria or elsewhere think about such things? Um, I actually just want to make one remark, and that is, um, the original uh, terrorist bombers were the Zionists prior to the creation, the illegal creation of so-called Israel. Right. Um, they had at least three main terrorist gangs, and one of the more known um, suicide bombing terrorist acts was the bombing of the King David Hotel. I can't remember which year, yeah. but that killed a number of people. The Zionists have perfected terrorist techniques, so unfortunately it's been portrayed as a Muslim thing, but um, I just wanted to make that point. Mm. 
Um, as for the terrorists in Syria that are doing it, um, I'd say there's different reasons. Indoctrination probably is a large um, um, degree of the reasoning, and again, this indoctrination coming from absolute non-Muslims, these Wahhabi terrorists in Saudi Arabia and Qatar and elsewhere. Right. Um, but for example, just the other day, I saw a Syrian journalist. Um, he had shared a Facebook memory from 2014. Anyway, the memory was he had um, been able to meet with terrorists who'd been captured, and these were foreign terrorists from who knows where, Chechnya, I can't remember where. They're foreign terrorists. And he said in their um, testimonies, they said they had come to Syria to wage so-called jihad against, um, what I can't remember the terminology, infidels or whatever the Saudi Wahhabi terminology they've brainwashed these poor people, not poor, these stupid people with, um, these terrorists with. He had come to wage jihad against these infidels that were massacring um, uh, Muslims. This was his um, indoctrinated, brainwashed belief. And, you know, again, I would say the average Muslim rejects this and laughs at the concept, not laughs, obviously it's a sad idea, but rejects the concept of, you know, fighting um, this kind of jihad in Syria. Um, I think that it's a combination of indoctrination, brainwashing, um, perhaps heavy drugs are involved as well. Mm -hmm. But, um, I, I mean... Let's talk about the terrorism that Syrians are suffering in addition to suicide and car bombings. Right. Syrians are suffering very real terrorism, um, hell cannons, again on these villages that I mentioned, Fuan Kafaria, hell cannons on Latakia. Hell cannons are basically gas canisters that have been made into a rocket uh, or a type of um, projectile. Mm -hmm. um, mortars and hell cannons on Damascus. And the, the huge and sick irony and hypocrisy is that these um, mortars, rockets, missiles are coming from areas like uh, like Duma or Eastern Ghouta or Zabadani or areas outside of Damascus where Western-backed terrorists are, where human rights groups and mainstream media are lamenting that the Syrian government is besieging areas where terrorists are embedded and where terrorists are lobbying these, these uh, mortars onto civilian areas. Um, when I met with Dr. Shaban, I brought this point up, and, and she said, um, you know, well, she asked why do Western countries keep silent. I'm sure this is more of a rhetorical question. Why do Western countries keep silent about Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Qatar, who are um, financing, arming, and facilitating terrorism in Syria? And she also pointed out that there have been various um, UN Security Council resolutions passed about stopping the financing of terrorism. And yet, this has really achieved nothing, but they have been passed. And she said that the Syrian leadership has, since the beginning, spoken about stopping terrorism. Because, I mean, the theory is that, um, I mean, I, I, tr I personally believe that the terrorism in Syria is um, a combination of mercenaries and indoctrinated fools. Um, and I don't believe there's a whole lot of risk of blowback on Saudi Arabia because they are some of the ones that are controlling and financing these terrorists. Mm -hmm. But... Some people believe that terrorism will spread back to the countries from which they've come. So, you, you know, the terrorists that have come from France and trained um, in Turkey and, and waged their disgusting um, acts of terrorism in Syria, um, some people believe they will come back to France, whatever. But she was pointing out that Syrian leadership has condemned this terrorism um, and said that you must stop it here so it doesn't spread, okay, and she made a very valid point that the way the Western media treats uh, any Syrian leadership or any Syrian period, whether it's a journalist or civilian that you quote, um, she says it's the view of the colonizer to the colonized, that the colonizer is honest and fair, why the colonizer isn't telling the truth, it's not trustworthy. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and her message was that um, that Western people or people outside Syria understand that mothers, children, fathers, grandchildren, people are suffering under this terrorism, and they want to live in peace and security, and that people are not talking about these mortars. So you, in the beginning, you asked me um, what has changed, and one thing that had changed is that, say, um, in June 2014, when I spent a couple of weeks in the old city, or in June I was there for one week, in April I was there for a couple of weeks, and the mortars were hitting um, every day. I mean, I would wake up to the mortars, and for some reason they didn't hit the East Gate area exactly where I was staying, but they were hitting all around. They still hit, but they're, they're not quite as frequent. I mean, they, they are still killing people, and that must be denounced. But one of the reasons they're not as heavy is because the Syrian Arab army has retained, um, returned security to places like Jobar, where the mortars were being fired from before. And this is one of the reasons why there is a siege or a military siege on the terrorists in places like um, Duma, where, where, where civilians have been given the option and have been evacuated. People do remain for whatever reason, if they're supporting the terrorists or otherwise, but they have been given the opportunity to evacuate. And the terrorists that remained are under siege because these are the very people that are sending these hell cannons and mortars out on civilian hospitals, streets, schools in Damascus and, and outskirts. Mm -hmm. Ava, I'm trying to understand this um, sort of from a rough geographic point of view. A lot of these places you're describing where ter uh, the terrorists are dug in, um, for long enough for them to have built these networks of underground tunnels and so on as they move between suburbs in a, an already demolished city um, or suburbs of cities, how is it that the, there's a kind of a standoff more or less. I mean, the Syrian army seems to be making some gains. Why is there a standoff? Because surely behind these terrorists, there's no great big army. I'm trying to understand why the Syrian the Syrian army is not able to come around the back of these guys, so say east from Damascus. Is it is it like it looks on on most maps that we're seeing these days? The military maps have the whole. Um, west of Syria under government control, and then more or less large swathes of the east are under ISIS control. It's a desert. A lot of it's maybe desert. Is that right? Exactly. That's a, that's an important point. I mean, the inhabited areas, most of the inhabited areas that the Syrian um, uh, government or army has under control, um, there within those, for example, Aleppo, you have hotbeds of terrorists, and the army is waging, um, you know. Uh, they are trying to make pro they are making progress, not just trying. For example, when you look at um, the surroundings of, say, Aleppo, the army has made very important strategic advances. And in Latakia countryside, and every every village, every strategic uh, point they capture, that does cut off the flow um, of weaponry and supplies to terrorists. But then you have the borders, um, you know, with Jordan or Iraq, and like you said, open desert and this is an army that's fighting and has been fighting for years, and they they can't be everywhere. Yeah. So they're you know, but they are making advances in places where the terrorists, like in Dara, in places surrounding Damascus, where the terrorists have had um, strongholds for for a long time. But it does take time. And, and one important thing to note is, contrary to Western media, I mean, if they wanted to, they could just completely level Duma. They could completely level Dara any area mm -hmm. where there's terrorist strongholds, but they're not doing that. They're waging strategic bombings on areas where there's terrorists um, embedded, 
but not the whole area because they're trying to minimize the number of any non-terrorist casualties. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the media is telling Europeans that the reason there's a refugee crisis in Europe is because Assad is using barrel bombs to indiscriminately bomb civilians in so his why own country. So why, why doesn't the European mention that there are millions of uh, refugees within Syria that have been absorbed into government-controlled areas? Mm -hmm. Latakia, Tartus, Damascus, Suweda. Mm -hmm. There are people that have come from terrorist-held areas in Aleppo, in the countryside, etc., from Dara to Suweda to Damascus, and they're being... Um, supported in these government-controlled and secured areas, but the Western media won't talk about that. Mm -hmm. Can you give us um, a, an overview of, of the numbers as best you know them? So the population of Syria, the numbers killed so far, um, and then the numbers of refugees inside the country. The numbers killed so far, I don't think anybody can accurately say, no. because, um, for example, the UN has long since stopped collating these numbers because there's no dependable um, uh, source of information. The sources of information used to be the so-called Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, the one-man group based in the UK. Um, he's long since been discredited as um, biased, as not having reliable sources, as relying on so-called unnamed activists. So he's no longer a source. Um, there's no credible source of, of statistics on the number of dead. And even, you know, prior when, when people, well, people do still source him, but again, he's discredited. Um, within the list, I mean, I'm, I'm not a statistician, statistician, but uh, colleagues of mine have broken it down. And the number of casualties is not predominantly civilians. It's, it's people who are defending Syria and terrorists, of course. Um, there, so yeah, there's no right now no credible um, source of information of how many people have been killed. But if you hear numbers like 200,000, 250,000, please bear in mind these are not 200,000 civilians. Over right. half of them will be people who are defending Syria. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, in terms of the population of Syria, I should know this. I believe it's 23 million mm -hmm. um, Syrians. Uh, something like a million um, registered and perhaps one million non-registered refugees in uh, Lebanon or displaced people in Lebanon. Other people have gone to Lebanon, by the way, not, not to register as refugees, but because their areas of Syria have been decimated by terrorism and they need to um, provide for their families, mm -hmm. so they're working in Lebanon. And then you have the camps in Jordan and Turkey, which are just, um, from all understandings, have not been there, but they're abysmal um, situation. Um, the, the situation in those camps is abysmal. Um, Turkey, I mean, we know that Turkey has been facilitating terrorists into Syria. This is documented. It's no longer a question. Yeah. They've been helping terrorists enter. They've been supplying uh, weapons. They, have, The Turkish uh, armed forces have themselves participated in attacks on Syria. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, again, this is something Western media doesn't address. Um, they like to talk about um, Syrian refugees, and for example, Canada has received a number of uh, 25,000, I believe it is, refugees. Canada is portraying itself as this benevolent country that's receiving refugees. Um, well, Canada is part of the problem. Canada is supporting this NATO assault on Syria. Mm -hmm. um, but by talking about refugees, you detract from the real problem, the real issues, which is this foreign war on Syria. And the fact that the Syrian government has, from the beginning, um, it's made uh, compromises, it's made changes to its constitution, it's, 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 it's dropped um, certain things like the emergency law, it's cancelled that, it's, it's, it's opened up 
uh, various things that, that people were calling for. What were the protesters initially calling for? Freedom. Mm-hmm. Well, what is that? I mean, spell it out. So they yeah. spelled it out. People, Some people spelled it out. The Syrian government made changes, and the protesters still say, we want freedom. Well, what is that slogan? But, yeah, I mean, so by talking about, um, you know, Syrian refugees, it's, it is sad uh, that people have, for whatever reason, felt the need to leave Syria. But the corporate media is deliberately obfuscating on the fact that there are many within Syria that have stayed because they support the country and they are being supported by their neighbors or by the Syrian government. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of on Turkey and Saudi Arabia and stuff, coming back to kind of the broad picture, um, what's your understanding of why this is actually happening in Syria? Why this? Why Syria? Why these kind of dogs of the Middle East and, and Western powers have turned on Syria, or why they turned on Syria in 2011, because it is my understanding that up until about 2010 or 11, Turkey had quite a good relationship with the Assad government. Not, not only Turkey. I mean, you see photos of John Kerry dining with President Assad. Right. Uh, the photos were maybe 2009 or so, mm-hmm. and John Kerry's very cozy with President mm-hmm. Assad. So, I mean, it, it is documented that from... You know, you could even say the late 90s, but at least from early 2000s, um, the West had an agenda to destabilize Syria by any means. Um, a lot of it has to do with Syria's resources. Uh, other aspects have to do with breaking up the axis of resistance. You know, Syria, Hezbollah, mm-hmm. um, Iran um, has to do with uh, so-called Israel. Israel not wanting to have this strong um, strong state mm-hmm. that not only is a strong state that supported um, that is allied with and supports the resistance and is um, obviously Pro- against Israel right. but also pro-Palestinian mm-hmm. and they Palestinians in Syria had equal rights as Syrians with the exception they can't vote but they mm-hmm. had equal rights to work to health care free education etc mm-hmm. this is not something they could say they have in Lebanon or Jordan or elsewhere where they live in abysmal refugee camps Mm. Um, and so part of this war on Syria has also been to, um, you know, it's not only been um, sectarian divide, it's also been divide on people who support, say, Palestine, mm. uh, have been terribly misled on Syria. Um, some people, because, they're, uh, because they happen to be Muslim Brotherhood supporters, I would say a lot of people who've been misled on Syria have been misled by the Human Rights Watch, the Ken Roths, that tweet out these false tweets alleging to be Aleppo, but it's really Gaza. You know, all this false information on Syria, the current campaign on Syria, um, which right now is detracting from Saudi's crimes of executing, you know, 47 people on mm-hmm. one day, of executing Sheikh al-Nimr, um, of, of, of genociding Yemen. So mm-hmm. that's not being spoken of now. What's being spoken of now is um, is this area outside of Damascus called Madaya, in which um, in which there are terrorists embedded. They have been there for months um, and the current campaign is to say, and this this will be echoes of Yarmouk um, if people were paying attention a year or two ago, mm-hmm. because these are exactly the same propaganda techniques. They're showing photos of emaciated um, men and women and children mm-hmm. and saying that these are people from Madaya and that the Syrian government is starving them. Mm-hmm. But we have it um, documented, the Red Crescent, or Red Cross has said um, there was an aid delivery into Madaya in late October, I believe, um, the Syrian people themselves in Madai have held protest in support of the Syrian government and army, a protest against the rebel, the terrorists, the militants in Madai. There are videos showing them shouting at the, the terrorists saying, let us out, let us get food. 
And yet the way the mainstream media and human rights groups are portraying this is that the Syrian government is starving, the people of Madaya, mm. we have to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the photos they're using are photos that have been recirculated. They were used in a campaign against uh, the government when it, when it was Yarmouk. They're now being used in Madaya. You, like, there are several um, uh, articles and videos I've seen where they take images that are being put forth on social media and by Al Jazeera, for example, and these images are from 2009, or they're from Africa, or from the UK, and they're, they're actually saying this emaciated child is from Madaya. Mm-hmm. Turns out the girl's from, say, South Lebanon. Mm-hmm. So there's this campaign of demonizing the Syrian government, and the parallels between Madaya and uh, Yarmouk are, are, are very many in that um, both areas are infested with terrorists. Terrorists steal any aid that does make it in. The government facilitates aid into getting in. The terrorists steal it and then either don't give it to the people or sell it at extortionist rates. Mm-hmm. And both of these um, campaigns serve an agenda, which is to take the attention away from the very serious crimes of other actors like Saudi Arabia against Yemen or against its own people, and also um, of detracting from the villages that I mentioned, Kafari and Fua, which are actually um, villages that the people are starving and, and in need of medicine and not able to get it because there's no way for the Syrian government to get it into Kafari and Fua. The only way they can drop any supplies is is by air, and that's um, it's not always possible because mm-hmm. they can be shot down. So it's it's um, back to the bigger issue, like the various states have different interests. Um, they have their own self-interest. Turkey has its megalomaniac uh, Erdogan that seems to want to be uh, a ruler in the, in the greater area. It, I mean, it's bottom line, there are various interests, but it is not about freedom and it's not about political change in Syria, except the kind of change that the West wants to see, which is cutting Syria up into various little mini-states, which they can control. They want to, they want to destroy Syria, which has, you know, mm-hmm. is always quoted as the cradle of civilization, and mm-hmm. with this plurality that it has and its history and its culture, it truly is. And these terrorists who call themselves freedom fighters, who call themselves rebels, leading a leading a revolution, they're not. I mean, they're not striking military points. The the, the mortars are targeting civilians. They target hospitals. They target churches. They target Syria's um, history, its cultural relics. You know, this is this is no um, revolution. No revolution would do that. So, but wh- who benefits from this? Mm-hmm. The states that want to see Syria um, destroyed. They want to wipe out Syria's history, and they want to wipe out Syria as a resistant state. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and it's 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 uh, as true for for Syria as it has been for every other kind of conflict or war that has been waged by imperial or regional powers and. It's that when they wage a war, they claim that they're waging a war against a government or a military or whatever, but uh, by far the the largest target of any of those kind of attacks by imperial, aggressive imperial powers is against the ordinary people of of the given country. You know, that was true in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya. Uh, I mean, especially in, in, in Syria, it seems to me that, uh, I mean, the, the major, uh, as you just said, the, this this ISIS proxy mercenary force uh, being funded and armed by this the client the U.S.'s client Gulf states and the U.S. itself and Turkey uh, that they're not interested really in fighting are not too interested in fighting against the Syrian army they want to uh, subdue effectively uh, the Syrian population because it's I mean the life of any country uh, is 
in in uh, in the people in the ordinary population, the ordinary people of that country. So they're the ones that are targeted when you want to remake a country in this way. Yes. And you'd think you'd think that um, that the, the average person would have learned our lesson now after Iraq, after Libya, after so many um, interventions, so many mm-hmm. so-called right to protect, so many um, humanitarian interventions in these countries that are now just destroyed. You think that people would be a little bit smarter? Um, it, it's it's actually shocking and sad. I mean. Yeah. People like us perhaps spend more time consuming news and searching for um, real news. But even if you don't, like, how can you truly believe in this day and age after the incubator babies, after all these mm-hmm. blatant lies, weapons of mass destruction? As you know, Dr. Al-Jafri said to Christiane Amanpour, <laughs> and this applies to most corporate media, they are the weapons of mass destruction because they are the ones uh, putting forth these lies that then lead people to support mm-hmm. our, our governments in destroying countries that have done nothing wrong and that are being warred upon. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Ava, what's your assessment of the Russian airstrikes campaign? Or what's your assessment of the feeling, or did you get any feeling from ordinary Syrians about uh, the Russian airstrikes? Oh, yeah. I mean, people that I met, uh, again, in Damascus, Homs, Sweda, uh, were very happy. I remember... Uh, I. Recently, again, when I was researching for my uh, article on, on um, Christmas celebrations in Syria, I came across a couple of cafes in Latakia that had been opened uh, under Russian themes. They had uh, Russian names, and it was basically um, partially to serve the, the Russian um, forces that were in the area, but more, I think, to kind of honor them. I mean, most, most Syrians I've uh, talked with, whether in Syria or abroad and supporting Syria, see that Russia's intervention... Um, is targeting uh, terrorist lines, targeting terrorist um, workshops and, and strongholds and convoys and supplies. And because of this Russian intervention, it's enabling the Syrian Arab army and their allies to be even more effective. Because, I mean, you mentioned earlier, like, the Syrian army is waging a war against this terrorism. But if, you, if the back door is open and more terrorists keep coming in, it's very hard to it's hard to put out the fire if you keep adding more fuel. So the Russian um, airstrikes are are not adding fuel. They're actually putting some water on the fire so that the Syrian Arab Army can then wage its ground operations. Okay. The U.S. government doesn't think so, for what it's worth. Well, yeah, you have to think. You know, I I remember watching uh, uh, an interaction between uh, a Russia Today journalist and a journalist named Matthew Lee, who's always uh, covering what goes on at the United Nations, uh, but this was actually a, a, a discussion between a State Department spokesperson, a U.S. State Department spokesperson, and this RT journalist asking them. So the State Department spokesperson was saying, um, you know, we have evidence that Russian strikes have targeted hospitals in Syria. And so the RT uh, journalist was saying, where's your evidence? Oh, we, we have evidence. And the RT spokesperson was saying, well, we have, um, the Russians are saying, and they do, they've, they've shown that they have satellite imagery to show that the hospitals you allege have been attacked have not been attacked. They're still standing. And State Department uh, spokesperson, oh, well, we have evidence. In the end, they, had to, they actually had to back off because um, Matthew Lee finally said, like, you're not answering the question. Um, we've, you know, Russia's, uh, the RT journalist has given the Russian evidence. Where, what are you saying? Have these hospitals been hit? And the State Department spokesperson eventually backed off and said no. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, when they're saying it and they're blatantly lying, and, and we know they have no qualms about blatantly lying, and Al Jazeera and the various um, corporate media 
whether they're Gulf or Western-owned, have no problem blatantly lying and manipulating the, the facts. Um, so when they say this, then the average person in the West is going to believe Russia is, is targeting civilians in Syria. Indeed. Those, those State Department press briefings are they're a farce. It's like a climb. Mind-numbing, but they can be hilarious depending on your mindset. You can, you can appreciate a little bit of humor from it if you approach it a certain way. But no, that, you, you can't think anything that's said there, seriously. Um, no, you're absolutely right, because in that particular one, I forget the woman's name, but when uh, the RT journalist and then Matthew Lee grilled her, she, she started kind of blubbering and of actually saying, yeah, yeah, you're right. No, she, she said, well, we hit, we hit. And it, I mean, it just it got to the point where it's nonsensical. And it was actually very, it was quite comedic because she clearly had no legs to stand on. Mm-hmm. She was encountering some some reality, yeah, reality distortion. Uh, uh, facts. Wait, what? Um, do you think? Uh, now we we touched on this earlier because it's going to be a long war. I mean, the Syrian army can only do so much, one village at a time, one suburb at a time. Um, is it within reach for the Syrian forces? presumably with Russian air cover, to ever recover most or all of the Syria's territory. Is that an actual aim of the Syrian government at the moment? I couldn't speak about their aims. I, I'm not privy to that information. I don't know. Mm. Well, where do you... Um, where do you or the people that you uh, have been in contact with in, in Syria, where do they see... Do they have any hopes, to, or where do they see the situation going, like, say, for example, this year, you know? To be honest, people there are, are living on a day-to-day basis. Just, right. They're yeah. honestly struggling to survive. I mean, uh, life has gotten quite expensive there. Um, many people have lost loved ones. And I think that uh, nobody can predict what's happening. Um, the Syrian army and its allies have made very uh, – have made – strategic gains, um, and again, with Russia's help, uh, eliminating some of these terrorist um, lines, but uh, at the same time, there's this constant, constant battle. I mean, it's, whether it's a political thing with Kerry and his uh, cohorts um, keeping up the refrain, Assad must step down, or Russia's a villain, whether it's that or whether it's just, there's always a new media campaign. Mm. So. Um, people like myself, I mean, right now I'm, I'm struggling just to get through some notes I have from my last visit uh, to write about the kind of human interactions and what people told me and what they're experiencing. So my focus is more to deliver, um, you know, I'm, mm. I'm not an analyst by any means. My focus is more to deliver uh, the message of what Syrians I've met with have experienced and are saying. Um, but at the same time, when these propaganda campaigns come out, then, you know, you get sucked into just defending mm-hmm. the, the truth. So I, I can't make any predictions about how this is going to play out. All I can say is that I have immense respect for the Syrian people and their army and their government for, for standing, um, you know, steadfast after mm-hmm. almost five years of this now. Well, I don't know what what's going to happen either, obviously, as you say, nobody does, but I, I'm pretty sure I know what needs to happen, and that's Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey, Turkey. throw in the UAE, uh, and, Qatar, and, the, and Turkey, all need to go the way of the dinosaurs. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, I, I'd like to think that, you know, after f- almost five years of this, that they would realize that their little plan for so-called regime change has not worked. 
right. and that they've been exposed. I'd like to think that's the way it's going to play out and but, that they're going to have to accept some sort of political solution that Syria's been offering. But they do seem to be off the leash, like, don't they? They seem to they seem to have lost the plot, though. They seem to be, like, like they're driven by the hand to hell or something like that to, to continue on with this insane uh, agenda against all... I mean, even international opinion, even their, the fact that their story isn't holding up, that Russia comes in and, and exposes the, their lies and, and makes them look like they, they really are supporting ISIS, which they are, uh, and yet they just go, meh, whatever, we're going to continue with our bullshit story and keep prop, catapulting the propaganda. And, I mean, it's beyond all reason at this point, but in previous years, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, they still they had a, a reasonable enough narrative that okay, if you're just an average person, you could believe it. But now they don't seem to even care about the coherence of their narrative anymore. You know? I know. I mean, and again, when you have um, these just blatant lies, like um, like Russia targeting these hospitals, or like the Syrian government starving this particular village, and then the lies are exposed, or like the the head of a major human rights group, so-called human rights group, um, Ken Ross, the head of Human Rights Watch has lied again and again and again. And he actually, he and many um, of the Western media, when terrorist Zahlan Alush was killed, and he was the head of the Jaysh al-Islam, mm-hmm. um, and they were, you know, one of the primary groups that is reigning uh, mortars and hell cannons down in Damascus. When he was killed, many of these, Ken Rothson, many of these leaders were actually emoting, you know, what a tragic loss it was that this this moderate rebel, this honorable person, you know, this is the kind of sentiment they were expressing, yeah. uh, has been killed. No, he's a terrorist. Um, he's being replaced, and the terrorism continues. But just their their um, blatant hypocrisy and lies. It is um, alarming. I mean, I, I daily I have conversations with uh, friends and colleagues, and we're just baffled by how transparent their lies are. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, you'd think that they'd have some shame. Of course, they don't. They have no shame. They have no morals. But for for an, an honest, average person, um, it is quite surprising how they continue um, desperately continue their lives. Mm-hmm. Do you know where a lot of the basic supplies the Syrians need are coming from? Because I imagine most com- most of the surrounding countries who are in in on this horrific pseudo war, if you want to call it that. It's a real war, but it's it's fought under False disingenuous means. Um, how 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 are supplies able to get into Syria at all? Iran, maybe. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I would say their seaport is uh, probably one of the main conveyors of supplies. Probably yes. there's through official channels like the UN. It must be coming through Lebanon, I would imagine. Um, but I would I would guess, and I don't know either the sea or their uh, their airport would mm-hmm. be the main. The sources of supplies, but that's a good question too, because um, you know, conversely, there's a lot of supplies that are not getting in because of the sanctions on Syria. Right. And you know, that's that's something that um, most Syrians they're very aware of the sanctions and the effect. Whether again, whether it's on the economy or on on you know medicines and vaccines and and food getting in. Well, medicines and, and vaccines and technology are probably the more important because Syria does have food, but um, the sanctions are absolutely criminal. Um, and they've been imposed largely by the West, and there's no reason for them except that it's a way to try to further cripple Syria. Uh You'd imagine that maybe Russia is uh, kind of quietly um, helping out in that that respect. Quite possibly, yeah. Mm. I I, I don't know myself, but um, possibly. Mm. There was um, a recent 
report in the British press, um, it may as well have been written by the Israeli government. It was basically a puff piece um, proudly showing off the IDF's um, assistance, medical assistance in particular, to terrorists who they would go to the border, pick up, presumably from al-Nusra or whoever or ISIS, take over the border into Israel, um, patch up in either in hospitals in cities in Israel or in, in quickly put together military hospitals and then drive them back into Syria. Now, this is the rumor, this was a conspiracy theory for the last two years. I think we reported on, uh, or we, we, we shared that Iranian news have been reporting it years ago, uh, was told it was a conspiracy theory, and now the, recently the Israelis have decided to proudly advertise that they're actually doing this. And they said something like 2,000 of these fighters have been treated in Israeli hospitals in this way. Right. I mean, this is actually something the UN itself has documented. Um, not that they did anything with their documentation, but the, the forces that were in the uh, occupied, uh, in the so-called DMZ, in the occupied Golan area, were documenting the, the back and forth of Nusra terrorists into Israel, um, of, of so-called Israelis, into soldiers into um, that area, into the Golan. Um, this was documented, and you know the Syrian uh, representative to the UN, Dr. Al Jafri, has spoken about this. Um, so it's not just a matter of, of hearsay and conspiracy theory, as you were saying. Like it is documented. Um, I didn't know that. I didn't. I wasn't aware of this recent. Uh, Israeli media campaign to actually advertise it. I'm not surprised somehow because they seem to love to to be as uh, brazen about their terrorist mm. activities as possible. Um, actually, when I was in uh, Al-Zahra, the, the area in Homs that was uh, bombed a couple of times in, in December, one of the families, the Hamdan family, um, had four martyrs. And <clears throat> I was talking with the, the son of the the father of the family. So the son is actually a soldier stationed in Kunaitra, and he came back after his family was killed. He was saying, you know, we were just chatting afterwards, and he was saying he stationed where he stationed. He sees the interaction between the Israelis and the terrorists. You know, and it's, this is something that Syrians are very aware of. Obviously, they're 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 trying to fight it, but um, and the West is aware of it too, because this is one of the means that terrorists are entering Syria and supplies are entering Syria. But it is exceptionally brazen, and just again with this, with the knowledge that Turkey is is also aiding terrorists and supplying terrorists and and, and weaponry, it's just um, mind blowing to think that anybody still believes this whole revolution narrative. Yeah, it, it must be it must be galling for the people there. I mean, they're they're presumably themselves being invited to believe that there is. A real revolution underway, and if if you uh, don't support us, say ISIS, then you're with the government, which makes you an infidel. And simultaneously, they're being asked to accept that as fact, and also accept that. Oh, by the way, we're going to Israel for assistance in a variety of ways. Israel, which is supposed to be is supposed to be in the Islamic Caliphate 
hierarchy of, of evilness is supposed to be the ultimate infidel. I mean, how do they square that one off among themselves, never mind to the people they, they're trying to conquer and to get on their side? That's another glaring, um, you know, fallacy in this whole narrative. If, if, if these terrorists, okay, say we'll just take uh, Daesh, ISIS, even though they're all the same terrorists, but we'll just take ISIS. Um, if they're supposedly these crazy Muslims, like you say, they're killing infidels, Israel is target number one, and yet Israel has never been attacked and will not be attacked. But, you know, the average person somehow doesn't draw that conclusion. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's because the media doesn't tell them to draw that conclusion. And unfortunately, many people have stopped thinking for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you've mentioned various places you managed to visit when you were there recently. Um, did you say that you got up as far as Latakia? Did you, were you able to visit the, the northern provinces? Uh, I did visit Latakia in um, April when I first went to Syria, okay. April 2014, and that that was an important visit. Uh, well, it was my first visit anyway, but it was important in many respects because, um, for one thing, we visited some uh, centers for IDPs, internally displaced people. So that was, you know, a glimpse at the fact that people have come from other areas where the terrorists are into government secured areas. So right. that was one, one interesting aspect. Another was um, seeing the plurality we're speaking of. You know, I remember meeting a group of women in a park that were sitting around. And, and Latakia, in general, is, is calm. The, the difference would be uh, that the terrorists do send rockets um, to Latakia every now and then. Um, but I remember seeing this group of women in a park, and the park was quite busy, um, you know, kids playing, et cetera. The women were sitting around smoking water pipe. And um, I was playing the role of somebody who wanted to dispel this whole narrative of, you know, sectarianism. So I did the unthinkable, the taboo, and I asked them what their faiths were. And as I said, it's taboo. People just don't do that there because it wasn't ever a part of their kind of line of thinking. But the, um, there were a few women that were veiled and some that were unveiled. And some, including the unveiled, were Muslim. So you had veiled Muslims, unveiled Muslims, Christians, all sitting together. So that was another interesting thing, just to say, like, uh, for myself, to be able to say to people outside, see, um, Syrians themselves um, reject sectarianism and are, you know, interfaith friends. Um, another interesting aspect of visiting Latakia at that point was that we went to an Armenian church that was housing uh, refugees from Kasab, which had been attacked earlier um, some months prior, and these refugees had horrific testimonies um, of what had happened to them, and they also were saying Turkey fired the first shots. So Turkey fired the first shots, they supported the terrorists, they helped the terrorists to infiltrate into Syria, open their borders, and the terrorists came and attacked this primarily Armenian town. Okay. Also visiting one of these um, refugee centers, I met a man, right? he was from a village uh, called Haram, right near the border with Turkey, and he spoke of atrocious things that had happened. They had been under siege for, I believe it was three months. Um, and uh, he was talking about how people would disappear from his village and their heads would be sent back in boxes. And now this is before um, Daesh was a big thing. So again, these are the so-called moderates that were doing these heinous acts. Mm. Yeah, it precedes ISIS. Yeah, we all remember. I mean, they were proudly showing off their the terrorist credentials years ago 
before they became the villains of we know in the West as ISIS, uh, that there's there's no break in continuity in their behavior. Something else I want to touch on while we're looking at the really horrible stuff. The rumors about um, organ harvesting of refugees, both inside Syria and then also outside, apparently in Turkey. Do you know anything about this? Uh, inside Syria, I don't know anything about it. I haven't looked into it myself, but I have heard uh, rumors of outside Syria, in a very Zionist fashion, I should say, too, um, in Turkey. Uh, but I, I can't add any details. I haven't looked into it myself. I hadn't heard anything about inside Syria, though. Okay, I only bring it up because a Syrian, I believe he's a Syrian journalist, brought it up at a UN press conference. I think in 2014, I gave a figure, uh, something like 18,000 children in refugee camps inside Turkey um, listed or named or had claimed to having had uh, organs removed from their bodies, but presumably by Turkish people operating under Turkish authority. But I haven't been able to follow it up. So, okay, it, there is a second follow-up, though. In fact, there is a, a U.S. military report which mentions that ISIS is engaged in this kind of thing deeper inside Syria. So there may be some basis to it. I Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised, and also perhaps in Jordan. Um, as I was saying before, I've heard that conditions in both Turkey and Jordan in their refugee camps are atrocious. And um, I believe a lot of uh, wealthy perverts from the Gulf come and buy young women um, to take as brides for however long, rape them, you know, take a new bride. Um, <clears throat> apparently this is quite common, at least in Jordan. I'm not sure about Turkey. Um, and the families there being poor get roped into um, or pressured into um, agreeing to marry off their daughters. But I can't speak authoritatively on that. I just know that the conditions are awful there, and I wouldn't be surprised if this organ harvesting is going on. Yeah. I tell you what, but, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, when we were talking about Russia before, it just it struck me too. Um, one thing about the Russian um, strikes, in addition to you know enabling the Syrian army um, and allies to do more effective groundwork, because you know cutting off the, the flow of terrorists or their supplies, um, it seems to have had an effect on um, these current um, negotiations for ceasefires or transfers, like out of Homs, the Alwar district, or the the ceasefire of you know, um, Zabadani. So I think, uh, and I was reading an article where the Syrian ambassador, excuse me, to Russia, Riyad Haddad, was, he, he was saying that they're at a turning point in, in the Syrian army operation against terrorists um, because of the Russian intervention in Syria. So I just wanted to bring that bit up. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, well, we're probably going to, we'll, I think we'll leave it there for um for this evening, um, you're a very brave woman. I think uh, there are very few people who would uh, um, venture to 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 go to Syria uh, at, this, at this time. Currently, like a war zone, as far as the heart of darkness, as far as most people are concerned. Yeah. yeah so I mean, it's a real testament to your to your bravery and your on your heart as well, because I know that uh, probably the reason you went there is because of your your feeling of. Um, <clears throat> wanting to, to help people and, and your compassion for people who are suffering. 
Um, well, thank you. Um, the, what, you know, I'm somebody who can go. I Financially, I don't have that liberty. I'm, I'm struggling financially, but I mean, in terms of my um, ability to move, I I am able to go. I don't have you know obligations here that tie me down mm -hmm. work-wise. Um, and and I do feel it's important. I mean, I I respect Syrian journalists, and hopefully we'll finish an, an article soon on um, Syrian journalists and media. But unfortunately, there are some people, or maybe a number of people in the West that don't take Syrian voices credibly. So I always just try to realize that and, and uh, you know, be a, a sort of microphone for Syrian voices. Um, not As I said, I'm not an analyst. I'm just somebody who has gone in and witnessed and drawn some conclusions, but largely I just try to transmit their voices. And if I could just mention one thing, you know how we were talking about Yarmouk, uh, or I mentioned Yarmouk earlier mm -hmm. uh, when we were talking about Madaya. So, um, again, I, I guess I'd just like to caution people um, because I've seen well-intended people whether it was Yarmouk before or Madaya now, sharing these photos of emaciated children and saying, oh, my God, we have to help them. The same um, uh, lies and propaganda campaign was put against Yarmouk. And now, even though the situation in Yarmouk remains that there are terrorists within, um, nobody speaks of Yarmouk anymore because it's no longer, you know, it's no longer a playing card for this uh, war in, in Syria. It, the new narrative is Madaya. I went to Yarmouk this last visit, um, and I actually got to go a little ways into the district. And it's just for those who don't know, it's a district that formerly housed over a million Syrians and around 200 or so, 200,000 uh, Palestinians. And um, due to the presence of terrorists, most of these people have been evacuated um, or have, you know, left and are in either have fled to other areas in Damascus or to government centers, etc. Um, when Yarmouk was a playing card um, for the interventionists in Syria, the narrative was the same, that the government is starving and bombing the people of Yarmouk. So when I went there, and this has been corroborated not only by the spokesperson I met with, but also by other um, journalists that have gone there, Russia Today or Erupt.ly or um, other independent journalists that have gone there as well, have said um, and that the spokesperson there, who's a Palestinian, not a Syrian, um, Palestinian spokesman, Abu Kafal Hazi, who's the member of a central committee of the PFLP um, GC. Anyway, he said that 25 to 30% of Yarmouk has been liberated, but there are still terrorists there. The, the, the security is still waging, um, you know, uh, they're still fighting this terrorism. Um, but the way the corporate media had us last believe, they still had us believing there were 18,000 starving Palestinians in, in Yarmouk. Now, by most accounts, by this man's account and other journalists, it's around 5,000, maybe 4,000 people. Again, it's impossible to know exactly how many are there in Yarmouk. Most of these people are terrorists or people who support the terrorists or people who have not left for whatever reason. But the vast majority of the population has left. And I just mention this because, again, right now the focus is Madaya because this is a way to vilify not only Syria but also Hezbollah um, that is helping, you know, allied with Syria in fighting terrorism. So I just you know, caution people to uh, be careful before they share these these photos to really find out, are these accurate photos? What's the real situation? Mm -hmm. Because in general, in both situations, the government has facilitated aid into getting in, and the problem has been the terrorists stealing the aid. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. People need to be aware and, and, and careful about the fact that, um, that Western media will deliberately try and manipulate them emotionally to serve an imperialist agenda and uh, anything you basically get from the Western media 
that demonizes the Assad government, you can either A, assume that it's false, or B, uh, actively not share it or support it because you know that it's serving an imperialist agenda, which is to continue the, this proxy terror war on the Syrian people. So I would actively just not even bother sharing anything that serves that agenda. Especially if it's a new topic and it's come out of nowhere and it's suddenly getting a lot of coverage. Yes. They'll, they'll, they'll get as much as they can out of one issue, but once the truth more or less, yeah, the facts are revealed about that, they just drop it and move we'll on move to on, the next yeah. thing. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and that's precisely why I went back to Yarmouk, because I feel it's important to revisit these issues that have been made um, you know, an example of and actually flush out the truth. Mm-hmm. Yes, good on you. Yeah, very well done, uh, Evan. And long may you continue. And I hope uh, at some point we'll be able to celebrate the end of all such evil things in this world. Eva, how can our listeners support you, support the Syrians? Um, uh, support Syrians? I would, I would caution people in terms of aid groups to be careful to really research which groups, if you choose to donate, to mm-hmm. support Syrians, because there are a lot of groups that are, are front groups that are actually supporting the terrorism. Mm-hmm. I think that um, speaking truth and sharing truth is very important, and contesting the lies in the corporate media. Mm-hmm. Um, is very important. Um, my blog, I mean, I, I, I'm most of the writing that I do is uh, is not paid writing. So mm-hmm. there is, if people wanted to, they can support, um, they can send donations. But I don't care. I mean, I, I do what I do for the sake of truth. Yeah. Um, also, I, um, I'm a co-founder of the Serious Solidarity Movement. Um, dot org. If people wanted to uh, donate to that, mm-hmm. our primary um, reasons for existence is is exactly to advocate for Syrian sovereignty and against the war in Syria mm-hmm. and to support um, support truth on Syria. So there okay. is a donate button on that um, blog if people want a website. If what, people want what's, to the name, what's the name of that website again, Syrian Solidarity uh, Movement? Yes, syriasolidaritymovement.org. Okay. Yeah, people, or listeners should check that out and maybe if they can spare a few. Uh, it, it, it comes uh, with uh, a stamp of approval from, from you, Eva, right? So... They know it does. I mean, we've done things like in the past we brought um, Mother Agnes Mariam, who's a Palestinian, uh, Palestinian Syrian, uh, Palestinian Lebanese nun that lives in Syria and that has done a lot of work on the mm-hmm. ground uh, for reconciliation and witnessing some awful things and speaking truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things we did was to bring her to North America to give people here a chance to hear a different narrative on mm-hmm. Syria. Okay. All right. Well, listen. Thanks. Thanks again, Eva, for for joining us and for sharing your experiences and for doing everything you do. It's uh, it's, it's a real service to humanity. If that's not uh, too high praise. Uh, well, it's been high. I think it thank is. You. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on, and thanks for excellent work that you all do at SOAP.net. No problem. All right. So we we'll hopefully we'll maybe talk to you again at some point in the future, then, and we'll keep an eye on on what you're what you're up to. That'd be great. Thanks so much. All right, Eva. Thanks. Thanks, Eva. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was Eva Bartlett um, giving us a lowdown on what has been going on in Syria, and it's uh, really useful information because otherwise we have to rely largely on CNN CNN and Fox News, and God help us, Jesus Christ. yeah, so I think we're going to leave it there for this week, folks. Uh, thanks again to Ava, and as she mentioned, uh, do think about maybe uh, supporting her in any way you can, or the, the Syria Solidarity Movement uh, that she's affiliated with uh, in terms of trying to get the truth out and keep the truth um, out there effectively for 
for for anybody who's interested in the truth, I suppose, for the rest, and they can all just you know carry on as before. Carry on and with your nose in the in the trough. Anyway, um, we'll be back next week with another show. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, thanks to our listeners and to our chatters, and uh, we'll see you next week. Hopefully. Until then, take care. Bye bye.